Hi everyone, Chris Body here. And before we start this episode, I just wanted to give a plug for some of the things that we're doing outside of this podcast. In this series on anti-Judaism, one of the broader categories that we've been thinking about is what does religious enmity look like? What does enmity look like between uh, Christians and Jews? And so in, we've been looking at that in different contexts. Part of that is relevant to my interests. I'm a primary investigator on a project called Figuring the Enemy. And Figuring the Enemy is a project that looks at multidisciplinary approaches to religious enmity. Uh, my part of the project is specifically looking at socio-scientific approaches with my background from psychology. I want to let you know uh, we have a conference coming up here in Melbourne, Australia, uh, from the 13th to the 15th of June. Uh, but also there'll be parts of that that will be streamed or hybrid, and we might use some of the material to construct a podcast episode from that. And that conference will be looking at socio-scientific approaches to religious enmity. And so we have contributors uh, coming from biblical studies backgrounds, uh, from psychology backgrounds and sociology backgrounds and a, and a wide range of others. Uh, there are people who will be involved in that conference, which uh, we've actually interviewed here on the podcast. If you're interested in that, you can check out the details on our website, figuringtheenemy.com, uh, where you can follow the work of the project. And if you want to, you can also register to come to the conference when those details go live. And now onto the pod. Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 114. On this episode, we're talking about Hebrews and anti-Judaism with Dr. Madison Pierce. Dr. Madison Pierce is Assistant Professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and the author of Divine Discourse in the Epistle to the Hebrews, The Recontextualization of Spoken Quotations of Scripture, published by Cambridge University Press. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Jennifer Guo, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our discussion of anti-Judaism in this series, we're joined by Dr. Madison Pierce to talk about supersessionism, and it was a lovely conversation. Jen, Chris, and Logan, what did you think of our conversation with Dr. Pierce? I really liked this episode. Uh, one of the things that I think is, is will be really shocking to some of our listeners, but something I find very interesting and compelling is how Dr. Pierce argues that Hebrews makes no sense unless... Uh, we assume that the author thinks that the cult should be uh, continued and participated in and ongoing and that that's a good thing. So the view that the author wants the temple cult to stop or people to stop participating in it or ditch it altogether uh, actually makes complete nonsense of the text. I think that this will reframe uh, a lot of assumptions uh, for a lot of us. Uh, and I find that very helpfully disruptive uh, for myself and for uh, many of our listeners. Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. Dr. Pierce, of course, she's an expert on Hebrews, but she was also one of my former professors. So it was really great to be on this episode. And one thing that I think was particularly beneficial was the ways that we nuanced even more than the introductory episode, the issue of how to define supersessionism, because we have the two polar opposites of People who might want to say, you know, everything in the New Testament by nature is supersessionist. And then we have the opposite of some people who might want to try to say, well, nothing is supersessionist because the authors were Jews. And so I appreciated the clarification on that. And especially uh, Dr. Pierce's reminder that a common harmful way to interpret Hebrews is to say that these are the good Jews who got it right. 
Yeah, I really appreciate just the way that um, Madison engages with not just Hebrews as an ancient text, but really relates it to uh, the modern experience and puts it in the in a broader context. And I think it'll be a really helpful conversation uh, for us as we think about possibly one of the most difficult books of the New Testament uh, as it relates to Hebrew scripture. And here's our conversation with Dr. Madison Pierce. Well, Dr. Pierce, thanks so much for joining us again on the pod. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So in this conversation about supersessionism in Hebrews, uh, how about we begin with your understanding of the purpose of the letter? What What is the author trying to accomplish? Of course, there's this particular uh, view that's really persuasive that actually what this whole text is about is trying to get its readers not to sort of deconvert or to sort of uh, switch back to, to Judaism. Can you speak to that common uh, understanding of the letter and how you understand it? Absolutely. Um, I mean, as far as what the positive purpose of the letter is, that there's a, you know that's a little harder to substantiate. So I can definitely break down this particular theory, um, and then I'll I can gesture towards a more positive idea. But there are a lot of issues with this um, kind of common theory in scholarship. Um, so first of all, uh, we have no clear indication that the people in the community at the time don't identify as Jewish. That, that's a relatively easy one that we could consider. The other one, um, which I think goes more in line with uh, some of the, the ideas that y'all are putting forward in this series, is that the, the author in the letter is talking about them becoming faithless, them falling away, them returning to kind of dead system, things like that. And I, I think that the understanding that that would be representative of the Jewish faith is a, a huge problem. So in what world is continuing to follow Adonai and to be Torah observant and all of that? How, is, and how in the world is that faithless? And so I think that that is, is one of the significant or a couple of the significant concerns I have with that theory. In terms of what the author is doing, um, just briefly, I mean, he is uh, encouraging them to continue forward, uh, to persevere, all of that. Um, and it's not necessarily about what he's encouraging them away from or back, to, you know, uh, about reversion or anything like that. But um, he's encouraging them to kind of live in light of what they already hold to be true, I think. With the book of Hebrews, there are so many unknowns, I guess, with, with the text. I mean, authorship, dating. How do those affect the potential readings of the text? Um, and, and especially I'm thinking, how do our presuppositions about uh, and, and people in our church's presuppositions about the authorship or the dating of the text then influence those readings? Yeah, that's a great question, Chris. Um, I hope what I'm about to say is relatively coherent because um, I'm, I'm trying to pull together some threads. But uh, one, of the, uh, one of the concerns that would seem to be most relevant for this conversation would be the one about dating. Um, and so there's a significant conversation about whether Hebrews is dated pre or post-70, post uh, you know, the fall of the temple, um, and how that might relate to the way that the author talks about sacrifices. So the, so the argument goes, um, this is clearly pre-70, because if the author was writing post-70, and he was writing about the 
kind of temporary nature of the political cult and all of that, then the fact that the temple has been destroyed, that's a kind of nail in the coffin for the Levitical system. So of course he would refer to that. On the other hand, um, the fact that the author is uh, referring not to the temple itself, but to the tabernacle, the fact that he clearly has in view kind of heavenly worship, um, those would be the kind of arguments that that people would uh, appeal to for it being post-70. And I think that um, they're largely conjectural. I mean, this is a kind of mere reading of the text and um we're, we're not really able based on the, the internal evidence to make a clear judgment. I mean, uh, either way, um, the author appears to be uh, appealing to a kind of ideal form of cultic worship. And he's uh, using that as a kind of, you know, best case argument. You know, this, this is the system in which Jesus serves. So in terms of what that means for people as they're encountering Hebrews, I think it's really important to keep in mind that one, I mean, first of all, I don't know that a lot of people in the pews are reading Hebrews. That's part of the problem uh, from my perspective. Um, but I think that really the default for people reading Hebrews is that um, it's denigrating the sacrificial system. And so honestly, it doesn't matter if it's pre or post 70. Um, there, there's a kind of expectation that whatever it's doing is saying cultic worship is not good. Um, of course, that argument might be more powerful if the the cult is still operating, um, but but I'm not sure that that's necessarily kind of making it um, making it into churches necessarily. I'd like to ask about the language of old and new in uh, the letter, and I think particularly of this potentially very contentious sentence in Hebrews 8.13, which says, uh, in speaking of a new covenant, it has paliophied, maybe, <laughs> pepaliochen. Uh, it has made the first one old. Some translations say obsolete. Uh, and what is obsolete uh, and growing old will soon disappear. The, the text, uh, the sentence finishes. Of course, there are many different ways to understand the, I assume many different ways to understand what the text means by old and new. And there are kind of more supersessionistic and maybe less or not supersessionistic uh, ways of construing that. What are some of the options here and how, uh, or you know, popular and scholarly, and what, what's your own take uh, on, on this language? Yeah, that's a great question, Logan. And I, I expected we might talk about Hebrews 8 today. Um, so first, uh, kind of anecdotally, uh, I think that this is the text that brings Richard Hayes to conclude in Echoes of Paul or echoes the scripture in Paul, that Hebrews is relentlessly Christocentric and relentlessly supersessionistic um, or something like that. Definitely relentlessly in there twice. <laughs> so it's for real. Um, but nevertheless, I think that um, this can be read in that way. Um, Brueggemann, for example, interacts with this text and he says, how in the world, you know, can we take the argument of Hebrews seriously when it's so clearly anti-Jewish. Um, I'm paraphrasing there. I hope I'm doing him justice. Um, but this is to say that um, I can understand why this text could be harmful to those who encounter it and to those who feel that it is um, speaking in a way that uh, denigrates the Jewish scripture, denigrates Jewish faith and all of that. Um, and it has been read that way um, for, for a very long time. 
yeah, because it draws on the old and new language. And as we've discussed in our discipline, as we've kind of moved away from discussions of uh, Hebrew Bible as Old Testament, and even away from New Testament as New Testament, things like that, um, it's based on this language. And so for me, um, thinking about the fact that this is rooted in my text, um, you know, I've had to take that seriously. Some will consider this to be a kind of, we had one covenant, now we have another covenant. So now we have a new covenant and what has been made obsolete is the old covenant. So basically Torah, uh, the Mosaic covenant is no longer in effect. We're, we're doing something different now. As it would happen, um, these kinds of arguments are exactly why I work on Hebrews. Um, historically, or, you know, I, I came, um, I encountered these arguments when I was a teenager and I found them completely unsatisfactory. Um, really, I, I found it to be unsatisfactory in our kind of understanding of who God is because I didn't love the idea that, you know, God did a thing and then he was like, oh, this doesn't work super well. So I'll just do a different thing. Um, so that, that's why I fell in love with Hebrews is because I felt like I got a different answer. Um, but anyways, I'm, I'm taking a, a minute to, to answer this question. So in my understanding, this is, um, this statement can't completely be uh, stripped of its difficulty um, because it is talking about a change. It's similar. There's another statement in um, Hebrews 7, uh, you know, talking about there being a kind of, uh, you know, the law, um, there being a change in legislation, you know, the, the law was weak and useless potentially as an interpretation there. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of issues. So I don't know that we can completely um, undo that. I think that it also gets into kind of what we mean by supersessionism. And so um, if we mean that there's some kind of shift or that there's even a kind of an extent to which a Christian reading is privileged, then that would be a problem. Um, to the extent that we understand supersessionism to be um, any kind of Christian reading, where we take a Christian reading to be the one true reading or an ideal reading or something like that, um, to the extent that that's true, then yes. Hebrews is absolutely supersessionist. It's going to identify Jesus of Nazareth as a referent within these various Jewish texts and understand him to be um, an ideal cultic figure and him to be, um, you know, executing an ideal kind of cultic system and et cetera, et cetera. So that's one thing. But to say that this actually completely replaces the earthly cultic system, that it has any idea that the earthly cultic system has no value for them, et cetera, et cetera, that's absolutely not what's going on here. So one of the reasons that I find um, a, a, a relentlessly supersessionist reading of, um, of Hebrews 8 to be unsatisfactory is actually uh, based on the text itself. Um, so we have here a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And I should say that there are there are a lot of different conversations, even within Hebrew Bible, um, about what it means to establish a new covenant. So there are conversations about the Hebrew word there, whether, whether it signifies something being new or renewed. And um, I think that that is something that we need to consider in our interpretation of this as well. So it would seem, based on Hebrews 8.13, that the Hebrew, that Hebrews or the author of Hebrews is saying, oh, this is a new thing. This is not a renewed thing. We're, we're starting from scratch. And so we'd say, okay, this is his interpretation of that word. And he's making sure that you don't go with a more kind of uh, contiguous kind of understanding or something like that. However, 
the author actually, if you examine the text form of uh, Jeremiah 31 or here, you know, Greek Jeremiah 38, um, it's really interesting because there are a number of variations between the Septuagint text and the text that we have here in Hebrews. And I personally think that the variations when taken together actually suggests that the author has an intertext in view, and that is Greek Jeremiah 41. And there, there's this conversation about this covenant that's been perfected, suntileo, which is the same word that Hebrews inserts here. Um, and it's a covenant of release or ephesus, which is, of course, the New Testament word used often for forgiveness. And it's one that Hebrews is going to use in, in chapter 10 in particular. So this is a covenant of release. And so I think what the author is doing in saying that this is a covenant that's been, that needs to be, you know, the, the Mosaic covenant that needs to be renewed in the way that it's being used and um, the way that it's being privileged within the community. So, you know, uh, to say that plainer, the author of Hebrews is saying, or, or in Jeremiah, it's saying, y'all need to actually follow the covenant you have. Um, I think that that's what Hebrews is doing as well by bringing these two texts together. Is he saying, no, seriously, we have this covenant and we need to actually live in light of it. And so um, I would take that to mean that the Mosaic covenant is the covenant that he is anticipating that they would uh, be in adherence with. And um, I have just one, one more kind of, you know, uh, reading along these lines, which is that the author of Hebrews is going to quote this passage again in Hebrews 10. And what's interesting, if you look, if you do a textual analysis, is that um, in Hebrews 8, he's going to make various changes to what we would consider the kind of, you know, the Septuagint text or the old Greek, um, so the received text that we have. Um, in Hebrews 10, he's actually going to kind of undo some of those. So it's going, in some ways, the text is going to go back towards the Septuagint, but he makes other changes. And those other changes... I call them changes. Others interpret this differently, but these other changes that he does actually brings the text into alignment with another intertext, which is Exodus 34. Um, and Exodus 34 is, of course, a classic text about Adonai persisting in faithfulness with the people of Israel, despite their considerable disobedience after the golden calf. So I think this pushes us, even with the stark statement in Hebrews 8.13, towards an understanding of the covenant as being one that is continuing on with, with the people. So honestly, um, it really depends all of this depends on how we define supersessionism. So um, when I was working on my PhD, uh, when I came to um, a, a section on Hebrews 8, um, I, I had kind of drafted a discussion about some of these questions. In fact, with some of the dialogue partners that I've mentioned, you know, Hayes and Bergamon and all of that. And um, I said, you know, I want to make an argument that Hebrews isn't supersessionist. And um, so my supervisor, uh, Francis Watson, he looked at me and he said, well, Madison, all Christian interpretation is supersessionist. And he said, you know, this terminology is just, you know, he, he went off. He was, you know, it's just not unhelpful at all and, and all of that because it can mean so many different things and all of that. And so that conversation was really helpful for me. So this is probably, um, you know, 2016 or something like that. And since then I've, I've been trying to think about it. So how do we come to an understanding of a text, uh, a Christian text that is not, you know, relentlessly supersessionist, um, but we observe the fact that 
Christian claims or Christian interpretations of the text are to some degree exclusivist. So this is reading Jewish scripture in light of Jesus of Nazareth. And so it is um, kind of creating a finite referent. And that is to some degree saying the other interpretations that are not about Jesus are to some degree incomplete. And so if, if that is supersessionist, and I think Francis is right that it probably is, then yeah, Hebrews is supersessionist. Um, but uh, if we're talking about a kind of understanding of the text that says that um, Jewish scripture has absolutely no uh, use without uh, being read in a kind of Christocentric way, um, that the Jewish cult has no value because Jesus, um, et cetera, et cetera, then that is deeply unhelpful and is absolutely not what Hebrews is doing. And, you know, I would go on to say that the argument of Hebrews absolutely does not work if we think that the, you know, that Torah is not in effect. I mean, why in the world would he pick these analogies for a people that thinks that it, you know, Torah is completely out the window or something like that. Madison, thanks for that engagement with uh, the, the, the question of replacement or continuing. And certainly in my area in the fourth gospel, this is a question that I think we need to engage with more because so many people write off any possibility of, of continuation because, you know, 70 and all that. Uh, yeah. But one of the areas that, that comes up for me is that uh, within this context, from a sociological perspective, any group that is changing in general is to some degree inherently supersessionistic. There is a replacement of what has gone before because the group has had to change. So does that make a continuation of covenant, covenant perspective where the covenant is still continuing, but there is an inherent change that has occurred because of uh, time and distance and you know, perhaps 70, does that actually make it any less supersessionistic from a from a sociological sense, uh, even if it may be less from a theological perspective. Yeah, that's really helpful, Chris. Um, I mean, I, I can't say, you know, um, or I can't evaluate the argument from a sociological perspective necessarily. That's certainly not my area. But um, I, I think I can touch on um, or try to answer that question, which would be to say, um, I, I personally think that the author of Hebrews is pressing them to understand themselves in continuity with those people. Um, the way that he presents his argument is encouraging them to consider themselves the, the people of God who wandered through the wilderness whose ancestors are those who wandered through the wilderness, um, you know, those who have received the speech of God for all time. And um, on the one hand, we could say that that, that is um, supersessionistic uh, to an unhelpful degree because it, it sort of, um, it minimizes the special nature of the relationship between God and the, and the ethnically Jewish people. Um, on the other hand, I think that because the author, and or sorry, and maybe not on the other hand, I mean, I, I do want to wrestle with that fact and take it seriously. Um, but it is also the case that the author is encouraging them to really to think about themselves as all within one family of God. It's actually similar to what Luke does with the genealogy, um, him going all the way back to Adam and then thus to God is to say that, you know, really we're all a part of, of God's family, um, even if the Jewish people have... Um, have been able to uh, be a part of God's family in a very special way. 
Um, so I'll give you a thought experiment that's probably impossible to answer, but maybe it will generate a helpful conversation. So I apologize for this ridiculous hypothetical in advance. Let's say I'm talking with the author of Hebrews and I tell him that day before the uh, Day of Atonement, I'm going to throw a bunch of human bones in the inner court. Would he say, doesn't matter because we got a high priest? <laughs> or would he be like, what are you doing? Ethics aside of like, this is a mean thing to do. Yeah. Just on like the cultic sense, would he care? Or would he just say, doesn't matter. The blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins anyways. Ha ha ha. So there's, there's an impossible thought experiment for you. Wow. Um, thank you, Logan, for that thought provoking question. Uh, no, seriously. What's um, sass? <laughs> no, I love it. Um, because it is, it's a really helpful demonstration. Um, of where the author is at. So if, you know, if he doesn't think the cult is important, then, you know, why would he care? Except for, yeah, maybe it's super mean. Um, oh, I think the author of Hebrews would be outraged. Um, so I, I, this is something I'm still kind of thinking through in my own personal work. You know, what, um, I, so I think the author of Hebrews would encourage them to continue to participate in the cult. Um, why is still the, the question that, that I, I'm, um, working through, but I, but I'm Anglican. And so I actually like have absolutely no problem with them continuing in sacred rituals and participating in things that are really important to them, even if what they affect is understood in a different way, because what is, what is approaching the altar or what is, you know, bringing forth your, you know, your bull or your goat or whatever, um, is something that you do that is a, um, try not to use the word sacrifice because I, I would be using it in the kind of spiritual modern sense, but that's, um, it's giving of yourself. Um, that's still anyways, it's, uh, wanting to be, uh, generous with your resources in a way that recognizes that they are from God. Um, and it's also continuing to participate and to actively allow God to shape our everyday life because, I, again, I'm, I'm super Anglican here, but I happen to think that rituals are really important and that, um, the fact that we could be seen to, you know, have no gestures or things that bring us closer to God. I think that's, I, I honestly think that's inconceivable for the author of Hebrews. And it's a really kind of foolish way that we tend to interpret the new Testament. It seems like to me that there's a, um, in, in a number of texts, it may be like, 40 years ago, people would have assumed that any kind of allegorizing or symbolic interpretation of anything in Judaism implied the eradication of that thing or the obsolescence of the actual thing. Uh, mm -hmm. The only instance I can think of where this actually happens very clearly in the New Testament is Paul in Romans 2, where he says Gentile Christians don't need to get circumcised because they are incircumcised in heart. But nowhere else, right? Like if, you, if you're talking to Philo, he'd be like, what are you talking about? Right? Like, do the thing and affirm its symbolism, right? Yeah. But it seems like to me that New Testament scholars are kind of reckoning with the fact that they can't assume that what happens in Romans 2 with the allegorizing of uh, or the symbolization, rather, of circumcision is the kind of logic that applies literally everywhere else, right? So like if, if, if Hebrew says, yeah, great, the, the cult is a shadow of, you know, what, what Christ is doing in the heavenly tabernacle, we can't then jump to assume oh, therefore the earthly tabernacle is pointless and we should yeah. just stop using it or whatever. No, it's super helpful, Logan. Yeah. I, I mean, and it also, I mean, it brings up the fact that um, 
it's not Hebrews that comes up with this idea of the heavenly tabernacle. And it's certainly not him who kind of conceives of there being heavenly worship. I mean, arguably the, the whole thing in Hebrews nine is not, you know, Ooh, look how limited you were in your access to God. It's actually, you, you had access to God in a special way. That was, that was very important. Consider the fact that heavenly worship affords you more. It's not about this versus that or none versus a lot. It's you have some because God is always with his people. I I will be your God. You will be my people and I will dwell in your midst. I mean, how many times is that repeated? Um, But this is a place where one, um, there's ongoing heavenly worship and two, and this is a, maybe a bigger question, but two, we can approach the altar and thus we are participating in the worship ourselves, not just Levites. And so I think that's really special. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Madison. On the topic of uh, criticism of the cult and supersessionism, can you talk about some other places in Second Temple literature where the cult was criticized? Because I think that can help us to see how um, a New Testament text can criticize the cult and the temple and not be supersessionistic. Mm, yeah, that's a good question. I think that, so Logan is probably the one who can come up with all of these uh, references uh, right now off the top of his head. But um, so I can only speak generally. I think I'm uh, a bit fuzzy here, but I know that there, there were considerable concerns with the way that cultic practices were currently taking place. There were concerns about the priesthood um, where, you know, there are people who are, you know, so-called illegitimate priests who were functioning. Uh, there were, there seems to be concerns um, within the second temple period about, yeah, where worship was, was legitimate. We certainly see it at Qumran, um, you know, they're, they're not offering sacrifices. They're offering, um, or they're, they're participating in washings. They're doing different kinds of, of, of things that are probably uh, because they do not consider the temple to be a place where legitimate worship is, is happening. And so um, I think that, uh, that that's probably, yeah, what's, what's going on there. So sorry that I can't give specifics, but we certainly do see in the contemporary literature that even within the uh, within Jewish literature outside of the new Testament, um, there are some significant concerns. Um, just to follow up on that, Madison, um, at the time, and again, conjecture we're dating, but I mean, leading up to uh, the time when Hebrews was likely written, uh, we have a situation where there's a second temple in, in Leontopolis, of course. I think it's Menahot 109, where it's referred to as a shadow of the temple in uh, Jerusalem. Are those sort of parallels valid to be make, making for Hebrews? Or is, is this actually a separate conversation that's happening entirely at the contemporaneous time? Yeah, um, I mean, it's super hard to say, Chris, whether those are relevant because of the dating and stuff. And so um, I think that, um, I think Hebrews intends to be read as kind of earthly worship full stop. And so, um, and again, I think the reason that he appeals to the tabernacle is because he, they have these ideas about the way that worship is being practiced presently, and they know they're not ideal, you know, for this reason or that reason or whatever. And so if someone could read Hebrews and it's talking about the temple, the temple, the temple, and they could come to the conclusion, okay, yeah, of course, this ministry of Jesus is better than that. 
then that would be a problem. And so he's returning to a kind of ideal time when they were uh, practicing properly. Of course, you know, there's some, you know, caveats there as well, but, you know, the time in the wilderness where there's an understanding that, you know, God dwells in their midst, where you see the presence of God in a particular way. Um, and so that, that's kind of what he's connecting to. Yeah. So on that, on that view that, you know, everything in the new Testament is supersessionist. What about, um, coming at it from the other way, um, to say that because the new Testament texts were written by Jews, that none of this is supersessionist. So how, how do we, going back to how, how do we define supersessionism? How are these New Testament texts different from some of the other uh, texts in Second Temple literature, like in Qumran that was mentioned? Yeah, that's such a good question, Jen. And it's something that I've been trying to think about because um, in trying to highlight the continuity that I understand between um, you know New Testament readings and Jewish readings of scripture, um, I really never want to uh, imply that, you know, our faith is the same as the Jewish faith or that, you know, that we are all in the same place or anything like that. You know, I do want to offer a special place um, to the Jewish people and their encounters with Jewish scripture. Um, so, yeah, what do we do with Hebrews? I think that some of the most harmful ways that this could be taken is to say that, um, you know, Hebrews is representative of good Jews, you know, people who figured it out. And I think that this is a pretty typical way of, of understanding the new Testament that, you know, there's, uh, these people understood that it wasn't about ritual and food laws and Sabbath and all of that. And so good job, everybody that you just happen to come to the same conclusion that we do. Um, but, uh, so I, I think that would be the concern there is that we want to, I think we actually want to say that it's supersessionist enough to acknowledge that this is something distinctive, um, that we, uh, are not Jewish, for example, um, but that we do consider ourselves to be within the heritage of God's people or something like that. Quick fire question. So, um, a popular text that's used, uh, you know, from Hebrews to show that quote unquote, Judaism is obsolete, end quote, uh, is the text, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. Um, what's your, what's your take on, on this text? Yeah. Um, so the argument in Hebrews, uh, well in Hebrews eight to 10, but, um, nine and 10 in particular. So, uh, you know, I think that he's developing something rather important and it's when he gets to, um, to Hebrews 10 in particular, where he's talking about what offerings affect, um, or what they accomplish. And I, I believe that that's where, where this comes. Um, so what he's saying is not, you know, those are useless by any means, but he's saying that they're only useless um, to a degree. And there are a number of different conversations about, uh, you know, what the extent of, of their usefulness is and yada, yada, yada. But so I'm just going to speak generally here, which is to say that what we get based or what we see in Hebrews is a concern about, um, the scope of the offering, um, what it accomplishes. So it's not able to cleanse the conscience, um, or remove guilt, um, kind of wholesale. Um, there's a concern about the, uh, so the initial effects, but then also the, the kind of possibility that those effects might be lessened over time. So, you know, they, it might be able to allow them to kind of feel forgiveness or to be forgiven momentarily, 
But because people continue to remember the sin, they don't necessarily, they're not alleviated from their guilt. And so there's also an extent to which it's kind of temporary. And there are a number of, of different reasons for that. I think one, again, is the kind of mental uh, thing. And that's something that Hebrews actually mentions. And that's why I bring it out here. And then, of course, the other thing is that, um, you know, those offerings are for the sins kind of prior to the offering. And, you know, sadly, uh, I think they're going to continue to to do things that are going to require further offerings. And so when he's saying that, he's probably alluding to those various things. Although um, I do, you know, I've had, I have heard, um, so for example, Justin Duff, um, that I think uh, John was in uh, St. Andrews with, he has a great argument kind of bringing this into conversation with, uh, and, and Logan as well, uh, bringing this into conversation with Isaiah 11. And so he's he's going to talk about the um, the effectiveness of of these things in terms of the kind of heart or the kind of desire in in putting forth the offerings. I'm not I'm not quite getting that wording right, but I think you'll catch what I'm trying to say here. Another rapid fire question, Melchizedek. Is this just saying Levites suck? Melchizedek is better. Uh, so drop the whole Levite thing, or what what's happening in Hebrews in Hebrews seven? I know this is a rabbit hole, but it's something that I think is well, our listeners will be interested in. Yeah, that that is a really good question. It's certainly relevant here because generally the way that basically all of Hebrews kind of, you know, 411 or uh, 5, 1 and following is read is that it's completely contrasting the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the other priests. And so, but what I like to point out is that the first thing the author says is that every high priest is taken from humanity, every single one. And we, of course, know this is true of Jesus. This has been his point in Hebrews 2. He's saying that he's human like us. He's our brother and sister, et cetera, et cetera. So in my understanding, almost all of Hebrews 5 is saying, look, he's human. He deals with weakness. He is called in the same way that Aaron was, et cetera, et cetera. All this, all the same stuff. And then he has a little bit of a, you know, quote unquote digression in the so-called warning passage and everything. Then he talks about the certainty of God's promise and then Melchizedek. And as a side note, I think what's going on here is he's talking about the certainty of God's promise because they might think, okay, like the Levitical priests have been around and it seems like you're saying you're going to do a different thing. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is that the oath that establishes the Levitical, or sorry, the Melchizedekian uh, priestliness, I don't actually think it should be priesthood, but um, the, um, yeah, the, the priest in the likeness of Melchizedek, um, that that is forever. That's unchanging. So when we get to Hebrews seven, this is when he actually starts to draw a little bit more of a contrast because he's saying that the Melchizedekian priesthood is eternal. And this isn't because, you know, the Levitical priesthood are so rubbish or anything like that. It's because they die. They can't continue to be priests. They literally can't. Dead people can't do that. I mean, for a lot of different reasons, not least the cultic impurity. So, um, so anyways, Melchizedek is effectively an example that the author can appeal to that is an eternal priest. I personally think that he's kind of um, drawing on the lore that's present in Jewish literature at this time, that he's uh, not necessarily saying that Melchizedek is eternal, 
think that has some theological problems. Some think that maybe he's an angel or something like that. But yeah, I think that's kind of what's going on. Well, Dr. Pierce, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your thoughts on Hebrews again. Thanks, y'all. It's been a blast. 